Actually, each newer glider that you get, they're going to be easier to fly, not harder to fly, until you get to the very newest of gliders. And we saw here at the contest, the new gliders, they're spectacular, they're incredibly fast, and they also can be a handful. Um, we saw some ground loops of some, you know, quarter of a million, third of a million dollar gliders. At this point, I had heard a loud twang, and I looked up, and the tow rope was snaking toward the tow plane. I'm thinking, oh man, I just had a rope break. And I look back at Harris Hill, and I said, well, there's no way I can make it back there. Buying a new sailplane manufactured to meet your specifications is a great experience, but one that requires patience. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hey, this is Mitch, co-producer of the show. Last week I reached out to past guest pilots and uh, told them that our 100th pod was coming up soon and encouraged people to drop a congratulations message on SpeakPipe as a nice little surprise for Chuck. We'll be sprinkling in a few of these messages during the course of the show, and thanks to those of you that took the time to record your messages. So please enjoy today's show. We think it's going to be one of our best ever. Thank you, Mitch. I'm super excited and looking forward to listening to those messages along with you. This is just a perfect example of the awesome team I have here at Soaring the Sky. Yes, this is episode 100, and as promised, this is going to be one of the best yet. I'm excited. Glider pilot, famous YouTuber, Bruno Vassell is here. He's going to help us celebrate and, of course, has some stories to share with you and tell us what has been happening with him lately. Our listener logbook is back, and we have a glider instructor that will share a very unique story about one of his most memorable flights he had at Harris Hill. And you know all of us at one point in time have struggled with the question, do I continue to fly the glove gliders? Maybe I should purchase my own. And that can be very intimidating. Our friend Sergio, the Soaring Master, is back to talk about just that, buying a sailplane. So let's have some fun and get this 100th episode launched. Hey Chuck, it's Joe Capra, the Gliding Goat. Congratulations on your 100th episode of the Soaring the Sky podcast. I'm really looking forward to the next 100 episodes. Bruno Vassa, welcome back to the show. Happy to have you. Hi, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's our 100th episode, actually, so this is pretty special Wow. Yeah, that's neat. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It, it's been a lot of fun, but that kind of reminds me, I wanted to congratulate you on breaking 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. What that means is that people are inspired by balding fat guys that fly. They look at it and they say, well, if oh. he can do it, I can do it too. So uh, the bar is really low. <laughs> Come on, people start, start building your own YouTube channels and, and uh, yeah, multiple camera angles. It's not that hard. I promise. So that's yeah, uh, it, 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 It's fun are, to share story. Yeah. Your videos are a lot of fun to watch. It's, they're great. So Thank sticking you. with YouTube for a minute, can you maybe talk about a video that you posted 
that maybe you didn't really expect expect much of it at the time, but then it ended up doing really well on your channel. And on the other end, have you ever posted maybe something that was just the coolest thing ever and then it just kind of languished? Do you always yes. know <laughs> when content is going to be going to be good? Like if it's how is it? I mean that's a great question. And the short answer is no, not at all. I, a couple of my videos um, have now surpassed, I think, 4 million views or something like that. And, yeah, wow. uh, yeah, you know, I sh uh, shake my head and say, why in the world did that one get? You know, one is a, a difficult takeoff behind a, a tow plane that's a little bit too slow. You know, glider pilots, um, you know, they'd say, oh, that that's interesting content. But most of the people that watch my videos don't have never even thought of gliding. You know, um, I guess I've won the YouTube lottery in that they like to just suggest my videos to random people at 2 AM. And, um, you know, so some of the videos, uh, they might look at the thumbnail and they might think that it's a, a video game. And then, um, luckily, you know, they, they go in, they start watching it and they're compelled enough to stay and watch. So they like the content and that's what YouTube likes is they don't just click in, click out, they stay, but many people come in and they comment, Oh, I thought this was a video game for the first two minutes. It's like, Nope, this, nice. this is real life. So I saw there on the channel that you took your daughter actually up for the first glider ride. I did it looked like a beautiful day. Oh, it was fun. And the, the poor thing, she, she got a lot of hate from that in the comments because, um, you know, she's a millennial and, uh, 16 years old and, and she, she recorded the flight with her, her cell phone. I was in the back seat, so I didn't see how much she was recording it, but, uh, she got a lot of hate comments of put the phone down, look out the window, but we oh, had a no. great time and, uh, she, she really enjoyed it and she wants to go for another flight. So it's fun. Oh, great. Now was what, that was the Grove 103, right? That is a Grobe Twinisteer. Yeah. Oh, Grobe Twinisteer. Okay. All right. I gotcha. But that was a Nephi. It that was. Area too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. flying over Mount Nebo, which is just spectacular. So. Oh, it was, it was absolutely beautiful. So maybe does she have some aspirations on learning how to soar or? Not at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no. But you know what though? <laughs> Lightning can strike twice. So my oldest daughter, Lexi, um, you know, I'm a power pilot too. And so, uh, we have a, a family airplane and so I'd take the family on trips and she was always the one that would uh, fight to be in the very back. So she could kind of spread out and fall asleep. Well, lo oh, and behold, yeah. six months ago, she, you know, says, Hey dad, guess what? I'm like, what? She's like, I want to be an airline pilot. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she, wow. uh, I want to take flight lessons. And I'm like, you've had never had any interest. Well, she's, she's now soloed and she's doing great. And within the next couple of weeks, she'll have her uh, private pilot license. So you never know who oh, might wow. get the bug. So they might not show interest initially, but um, my key with my kids is don't push them because A, takes a lot of commitment and B, if they're not interested um, in something that I'm interested in, that's fine. They can choose their own yeah. passions. Well, you've got to be a proud dad. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's fun to to now share this love with her and, and she's now starting to fly gliders too. So I have my original awesome. Phoebus that I owned. I bought it back three years ago and I'm hoping that uh, she will fly it someday. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. We had talked about that the last time we spoke and I was actually going to ask you about that, but that's very cool. 
yeah, she might fit in it. I sure don't, but uh, <laughs> I'm keeping it for her to fit in. <laughs> so speaking of youngsters and soaring, um, are there any STEM programs there or organizations in Utah that are helping to bring young people out to the airport or try mm-hmm. soaring? You know, there's the, uh, there's the power, what is it? The power squadron, um, young Eagles, and they, they do some gliding, but not a lot in Utah. So, okay. You know, maybe someday, um, and, and probably somebody who's listening is like, no, there's this, this, and this, but that I'm aware right. of, um, I mean, yeah. I'm not seeing kids out at the airport all the time. All right, Bruno, I'm excited about this one. I'd like to talk about the 18 meter nationals just held there in Nephi. I've got a lot of questions for mm-hmm. you. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind, let's jump right in. Let's do. All right. So maybe you can help set the stage here and tell us about the operations on the ground. Like how many line crew and how many other volunteers doing race coordination, you know, weather, how many tow planes, all that. Oh boy. This, this took a minor army to, to do this, I think was number lucky 13 in terms of the number of contests that we have now run. Um, I start, I, I started my first contest, uh, in Nephi in 2013. And as I said, you know, we've now done 13. So we've done a couple to a year kind of a thing, uh, both in Nephi and then also in Logan. So the answer is, is, uh, we luckily, this was not our first rodeo, but we're talking, uh, boy, this one, um, because of a broken tow plane just before the meet, we only ended up having five tow planes, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And we were chock full. Uh, you know, we were at the limit of 65 gliders and the pilots were very patient. We tried the best we could to launch them as quickly as possible, but, uh, there was some sitting in some air conditioned cars at the back of the grid to, to stay nice and cool. But to, to go back to it, you know, we had, um, you know, ground crew, we had uh, four primary, and then we also had additional volunteers that, uh, that showed up. We had um, obviously a CD. I was the contest manager. Our uh, scorer, unfortunately, uh, John Godfrey, he ended up needing to do it remote. He was hoping to fly. Um, our CD, uh, that was, uh, Marshall and, uh, he did a fantastic job and uh, by, by the way, Marshall. So, uh, we brought him from back East. He'd only CD contests back East and, um, oh, wow. and, and this was his first Western contest and he did a great job. So it's Marshall McClung, you know, his full name, but, uh, very happy to, to work with him. We then had a whole host of people behind the scenes, whether it's filling oxygen or doing accounting, um, rolling the, the landing areas, preparing things. So, oh my goodness, it, it did take an army. So no, I didn't answer your question as to the exact numbers because I, it would take a while to count. I mean, there were probably 15 to 20, um, plus total volunteers that, that really helped to pull this off, but oh, it was a oh, huge nice. success and my goodness, did we have fun. Oh, yeah. I saw a lot of the pictures from there. It looked pretty awesome. Looked like everybody was having a good time. Yeah. Well, you have a good time when you've got when you've got uh, good weather and uh, you haven't, uh, you know, hit your your glider on a runway light with your wing. Um, And and I make that joke because we unfortunately had multiple pilots pull off because of ground damage to their gliders, you know, pulling them around. Oh, wow. We've got really strong, uh, fragile ships. <laughs> mm. From front to back, 
how long did it take everybody to get launched on a typical day there at Nephi? And r roughly what altitude does everybody jump off tow on race day? Like how long or far was the typical tow or are they all different depending on the task of the day? Yeah. Boy, you're asking for the dirty laundry, aren't you? Jeez. So um, <laughs> actually, John Godfrey, I just got off the phone with him and he did calculations and it took us a full 10 minutes per cycle. And that's uh, from toe to the next toe. Okay. Uh, we're dealing with density altitudes of anywhere on the low side, 7,500 to 10,000 feet. And uh, we've got some pretty good tow planes, but when they're pulling these super ships with tiny wings and they're, uh, you know, 1300 pounds you know, loaded with water. It, it takes a little while. So, uh, average tow normally, you know, just normal contest tow to 2000 feet. Uh, Nephi is great because we can tow to the West Hills and not right to the mountain where you have to grind right on the mountain. You can stay away from the mountain, but, uh, we just tow over couple of miles away. So some of the toes ended up being um, towards the end or weird weather things, 2,500 feet, but for the most part, 2,000 feet. Okay. And to answer your question, um, it took too long, but uh, we went as quick as we, as we could. So, yeah. But I mean, we still were able to get in three and a half, four hour tasks. So it's not like, you know, oh, because yeah, of towing, yeah. but uh, no, we, we, we learned some lessons and we're going to, um, make sure we at least have, you know, six, possibly even seven tow planes for another big contest like this. Can you talk to listeners a bit about what happens when there are significant changes to weather and cloud base, for example, prior to start of a race? Do race organizers change anything like the starting altitude or turn points? How does all that work? Yeah. So if there's any questions about the day. Well, let's, let's start with how a day actually works at a contest. So you've got the, uh, weather people and they wake up super early and they start, uh, you know, checking the, you know, the pixie sticks and, you know, the, the fish bones on the ground that they're, they're looking at to try to figure out the weather. And, uh, in our contest, 8 AM, we then had a, uh, a contest, um, uh, task committee meeting, uh, every, every day at eight. And so the weather person then tells us what's going on and we then have to come up with our tasks. And then we, we usually go pretty early. So 9am was the pilots meeting. So we have an hour to figure it out and, and get everything ready for the pilots meeting. So that's kind of how that works. So, uh, we typically, if there's any question at all, there's going to be a task, a alpha task, Bravo, uh, even possibly a task Charlie. So um, if all of a sudden thunderstorms start popping up more than we thought, or uh, the the launch uh, takes a little bit longer, or we or uh, the lift starts later, or something like that, we can then change it. The way that the rules work is that uh, the contest director can actually change the task even when everybody's up in the air, but before the task is started. So he would then do a radio call. And say, hey, we're going to change to task Bravo, and then a pilot up in the air would uh, then s repeat that because the pilots that are further away might not hear it from the ground. And then we do a roll call where everybody has to say that they've heard it, and then we do it. So uh, it sounds like a lot of work, but uh, it, it's a nice flexibility. And and there were multiple times that. Nephi, where it's not that it blew up and was horrible stormy, but uh, because of one reason or another, we did decide to go with a Task Bravo type situation. 
Well, sounds like it works though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the people that we were dealing with, um, these are all pros. And so uh, they'd, right. they'd done it before. Um, speaking of the 18 meter nationals, I mean, we're talking, uh, we limited it to 35 gliders. Um, and I would say 20 to 25 of them are past national champions. And wow. the rest uh, pretty much were all at least, uh, you know, had won a regional contest. This, this was really good pilots. So I'm just trying to, you know, kind of talk them up because I ended up at the you know bottom of the <laughs> score sheet. So, you know, they were all really, really good. <laughs> they were amazing. <laughs> well, sp- speaking of how much of an advantage is it on racing in your home court there, stuff like, com- you know, comfortable with land outs and knowing exactly where the re- restricted airspace is and oh, where yeah, the house yeah. lift is located, all that. Huge advantage, huge advantage. So, I mean, I was so comfortable that I ended up landing out twice <laughs> during this contest. And these were on days where, you know, everybody else made it back. Um, but I was so comfortable. I'm like, oh, I'm going to, you know, push and go into this area and stuff. And then it didn't right. work. And there I am sitting in a farmer's field and I'm thinking, you know, um, I should have made it back. But it, it was a good experience. The two landouts were in fantastic fields. No angry farmers uh, was not forced to marry any of their daughters, and I mean, it was <laughs> it was you know quick retrieve. Um, so it was good. Good. I love landing out. Um, it sounds silly, but you know I've been flying for twenty seven years, and I think this were these were landouts thirteen and fourteen, and they were in cut wheat fields and just as smooth as landing at a on a runway. So it was good. Well, it's it's like a mini adventure every time, right? Oh, it is every land out. In fact, uh, I, I went on a third land out retrieve to go pick somebody else that landed out because on the day that I made it back, because they're fun. If you've never been on a retrieve, um, go, go one. Number two is if you're flying gliders, push it. So sometimes you're going to land out and you're going to see that it's a positive experience. Hi, Chuck. This is George Lee in sunny Queensland, Australia. I just want to congratulate you on the 100th episode of Soaring the Sky. I really enjoyed the time on air with you earlier this year, and I admire your dedication to keeping soaring pilots both united and informed, as well as giving encouragement and inspiration towards the realization of personal goals. May Soaring the Sky continue to encourage and inspire many for years to come. Although I'm now retired from soaring, I continue to take an interest in what's going on in the world of soaring. All the best, Chuck. I do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. So, you know, looking at the speeds posted for almost the whole week, it just seemed like you had to be off the charts fast, I mean, to even have a chance. Maybe you could talk about just how fast the conditions were this year. 
Great question. So let me jump into something. So the very first day, um, we, you know, we race and I had no idea what to expect. And I ended up um, with 144.5 kilometers an hour oh, wow. uh, for the task. And, yeah. you know, I, I flew 417 kilometers. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm flying a 15 meter glider at the 18 meter nationals. I was flying my 27, oh, but wow. I was like, you know, it's not like I'm trying to get on the world's team or anything. So I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to have fun and right. fly my glider. Yeah. So 144.45, I'm all feeling good about myself. I upload the file and I start looking at everybody else. I ended up being 21st for the day. And for the, for you Americans that are you know kind of dumb like me, we don't know the metric system. 144 and a half kilometers an hour is almost 90 miles an hour. So my first day I, I fly 90 miles an hour and it was good for 21st place. <laughs> so <laughs> that just, that just shows you what yeah. kind of speeds. So the, the top guy, it was 173 uh, kilometers an hour. And let me oh, just do a nice. quick search. Um, and that is, 107 and a half miles an hour. Wow. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm, I'm really good at almost 90. <laughs> yeah. And, right. Uh, you know, the winner 17 miles an hour faster. So oh, I mean, that's, that, okay. that's what Man. we're dealing with. Just amazing. That's crazy. Okay. So especially there in Nephi, how important is hydration, peeing, eating while racing? Don't a lot of pilots just try to simplify their workload and drink less or eat less. And so they pee less while they're racing. Yes. If you get behind, you are going to have a really hard time catching up. So um, what I found is I was drinking a whole lot, but because we were sweating so much, um, you know, I, I, I was prepared to pee in the cockpit if I needed to, but I actually never ended up uh, doing it any of the, the two weeks that we were flying. So yes, it's incredibly important. And I didn't see anybody skimping on, on drinking. Um, Oh, wow. You know, we were probably drinking a couple of liters of water, uh, you know, per day, and it was just barely enough to kind of sustain us. Oh, so, wow. Um, wow. so yes, be prepared to pee. So that way you don't, you know, chintz on the, on the drinking. But the, another thing too, though, is you know, once we finally get up into the air, I mean, we're flying uh, typically between 14 and 17,000 feet. So, you know, outside air temperature is around you know, 30, 35 degrees. Yeah. And so um, with it being cooler up there, then obviously the you know, capillaries shrink and you don't, uh, you know, you don't need as much as you would on the ground, of course. So. For glider pilots, Bruno, that haven't flown wet with water ballast before, what's the feel and difference in the cockpit? Like, I mean, on tow, thermaling, trying to get up yeah. versus a dry glider without ballast? And the answer is to completely dependent on the glider. So I absolutely loved my ASW-20. Uh, this was a glider I had before my 27. It was a 20B and you could really, you know, fill it up pretty good with water. And the difference that it flew between dry and wet was significant. You could really feel, it felt like when you were dry, you were um, flying around in a sports car and when it was wet it felt more like an suv so oh, there's huh. one wow. example now my 27 yeah. uh flying it wet um it feels really darn close to the same thing as dry the only difference is um, i'm just flying faster 
So, you know, I have to thermal faster and then all the other flap speeds are faster, but, um, I really enjoy flying wet. So, um, I think once you get to the newer generation of glider, so whether it's the, the 27 or the 28 on the Schleicher side or the, the Aventus twos, they really then figured out how to make it handle well, even when it was full of water. So, um, you know, if it's your, one of your first gliders, um, well, kind of putting it a different way, the newer the gliders, the easier they are to fly. So, you know, yeah. somebody, you, typically you buy an older glider to start with. Actually, each newer glider that you get, they're going to be easier to fly, not harder to fly until yeah. you get <laughs> to the very newest of gliders. And we saw here at the contest, the new gliders, they're spectacular. They're incredibly fast. And they also can be a handful, uh, full of water, um, both, you know, takeoffs, landings, crosswinds. Um, they, they they have such small surface area on the wings. Um, we saw some ground loops of some, you know, quarter of a million, third of a million dollar gliders in oh. strong crosswind mm-hmm. situations. Uh, they can be a handful. So um, quite frankly, it seems like the, the, the gliders that are, one generation old might be the, the the nicest to fly in the more difficult or heavy conditions. But I'm sure, you know, uh, that said, I mean, of course, I'm going to eventually buy a new glider. Um, so I'm not just going to stick with the older ones, but uh, there are some benefits of, uh, you know, a little bit older, but not too old of, of technology. You know, you're talking about ground loops. So what were the best and worst memories or moments from Nephi for you this year? Well, the best is that everybody ended up staying safe. So, uh, you know, we've now had enough events that unfortunately we have seen some very uh, dramatic things. We've, we've had some, uh, some people even, even pass away uh, during our contest. And I'm not going to go into that, but uh, um, for, for an organizer, um, all of these people uh, have become my friends that are, that are coming here and to see them, come have fun and be safe. That, that really is the, the number one high for me. So that's, that's the good thing. The negative um, in past years, there have always been, you know, come on, let's, let, let's talk the truth. Who goes to glider nationals? They're usually type A personalities, very focused. And uh, you know, in past years I've had some uh, difficult pilots that have grumbled and, you know, it, it, I'm the type of personality that you might have 64 people that say, this was amazing. But if you have one grumbler, it's really hard to not be satisfied because you think of the one grumbler. Well, this, this event, um, even though we were not perfect, people seem to be a little bit more um, patient. And I think it's because they've been forced to wear masks around for the last, you know, year and, and, and all of us have. And so I think just everybody was just jonesing to get out and to have fun and they did have fun. And, and again, the weather participated. And so the, you know, that was a positive. And so again, if you go to a a contest, just be gentle on the CD and the organizers, They're, they're trying their best, they're volunteers. And, uh, it, you know, what you say does affect them maybe more than you'd think. You know, we put on a tough shell, but, uh, um, you know, words, words matter. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it seems that a growing number of racing pilots, as they progress along their careers and they really start enjoying two seat flying. Have you done that in the last few years? And do you see yourself maybe partnering with someone in a two seater anytime soon? I've thought about it. 
Um, and the answer is I have so far to go still in my own career. I, I feel like my doing these contests for the last eight years has maybe hurt my my contest flying and my experience of you know progressing uh, in some ways. And so uh, for myself personally, I've got a lot of growing to do. I mean, again, here, look, you know, the winner was 107 miles an hour and I was only 90. Well, as we went through the contest, even in a, in a in single contest, it's amazing how much you can grow and improve. And, um, you know, my best day, I ended up uh, a ninth place one day. And uh, my personal goal, I was hoping to get to uh, top five. And that ended up being just completely unrealistic with these guys. They're just too amazing and their ships were too amazing. But it was a you know, positive experience and I, and I saw myself grow and progress even over the course of a single contest. So uh, getting back to your question on a two-seater, am I going to ever own a two-seater? Well, especially now that my daughter is flying and so forth. Uh, yeah, it could be in the future. Yeah, that's absolutely be awesome if you could share the experience especially with your daughter. Well. Yeah. Well, and, and I've met so many fun friends that both with the YouTube videos and the contest that uh, it would be fun to have a two seater. It's like, Hey, come out and, and fly with me and, and let's just yeah, have some right? fun. Bruno, I wanted to talk about gust fronts. I bet most competition pilots have had some encounters with these and gave them a memory or a nightmare or two. How about you? Get any stories you'd like to share or words of advice for pilots that haven't had their encounter yet? Yes, my first gust front was actually in Hobbs, New Mexico, and that was in 2012. And this huge, giant gust front came through, and you know we were already on the ground, so no big deal there. The only other gust front that I encountered uh, in racing and contest flying was actually this contest here. We were out in the middle of the uh, the desert, way west of, of Nephi, and there was a giant. There must have been a microburst, and you could just see this this gust front spreading out. But kind of a boring story. But uh, by the time it got to where we were flying, uh, the air above it was was not a big deal. But should you um, give them plenty of leeway and respect, absolutely. Um, I guess if, if we're not talking about giant dust storms, there were some storms at Nephi. Uh, Nephi is at the, the uh, just a couple of miles away from a canyon. And if you get uh, storms up the canyon, it'll blow down hard. And so there were some times where we were getting crosswinds that were gusting, you know, into the mid thirties and there were pilots wow. trying to land. Uh, so mm -hmm. my personal story was I came in, I finished the task and I mean, it was blowing pretty hard. Now we do have a crosswind landing area inside the airport uh, that we've prepared for this type of situation. I luckily though had enough um, uh, you know, altitude that I could find some lift and I actually just waited it out. Um, often you find pilots when it's really bad weather, they just want to get on the ground. And right. it's like, wait, you're trying to get on the ground during the worst time. Just stay <laughs> up, fly around for a little bit. It's going to calm down. So when I landed, yeah. I, you know, 15 minutes before is 35 knots crosswind and I landed with 10 to 15 knot crosswind. No big deal. Oh yeah. So really calm I guess my best advice is if you can, you know, think through it and not rush and wait it out. My goodness, wait it out and then land when it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so. Hey Chuck, uh, this is Henrique Navarro from Brazil. 
And wow, man, congratulations for breaking the 100 episodes barrier. Um, you know, here in Brazil, we, we love our podcast. You know, it's an interesting way, you know, to learn and at the same time to relax. So keep up the good job. Let's go to the 200. Bye-bye. I have some exciting news, especially for you Condor pilots out there. We are glad to have our sponsor, Just Soaring, back with a couple of updates about their Glider Sim Pro, a sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor Soaring. Their website is all new and now has a couple of videos to look at, updated product pictures and specs, and even a facts section to help answer some of your questions. If you follow the Soaring Academy on Instagram, you've probably seen one of the first production units in operation there at Crystal Airport, and so far it's a big hit with their students and instructors. Just Soaring is also proud to be the lead sponsor of the first ever FAI-sanctioned eSports glider race. That's right, the Sailplane World Grand Prix is coming in September. The winning pilot gets a Glider Sim Pro. You'll be seeing lots more of their Glider Sim rigs across the U.S. and the rest of the world in the coming months. So check them out at JustSoaring.com on the web or Just.Soaring on Instagram. So how important is it on big race days to stake out on your own maybe versus hanging with the lead group? Does it always pay or not really? to hang with leaders as the competition progresses. Okay. Well, here's going to be the, the cop out. Yeah. Bruno's coming up with excuses <laughs> after the very, after the very first race day, my entire computer system crapped out. And so oh, wow. I ended up flying the entire race with a handheld Udi. And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, I did have a, a V7 Vario that was connected to a, a power farm. So I could at least get alerts of, Hey, you're about to hit somebody, but I couldn't, I, you know, I didn't have any kind of a map where everybody was. So um, I actually flew this contest. Most of this entire contest, either alone or every once in a while, I'd see a glider visually and then, Oh, cool. There's somebody there, but um, it's even hard to see what their contest numbers are unless you're you know, right next to them in the thermal. So, Long story short, uh, I flew by myself most of this contest. The winners and the guys that did really well, uh, many of them flew in packs. And I think you know, talking to them and hearing them talk about strategy, you know, they were able to see each other, um, even when visually they couldn't. They could see each other on power farm and and stuff. So um, it was very very helpful. So the answer is, yeah, the the guys that are going fast typically we're not talking groups of. 10 or 15 or 20, like you might see in, uh, in Europe, but you know, three to five gliders all flying fast together and, and kind of helping each other, uh, without talking on the radio. Yeah. That, that seems to go faster. In the top five of the pilots, were there any pilots in particular that maybe jumped out at, at this competition that maybe were kind of dark horses that weren't expecting to do as well as they did? No, so many of these guys are so good. If you look at the final standings, I mean, the the, the top the top guys were all you know have been. Let me just look at the the official. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the top at least ten or eleven have all you know won some sort of a, a nationals before. So these guys are all really good. So uh, no, uh, no, there was something yeah, fun, and I need yeah. to I need to point this out. And it was on 
I'm sorry for the delay. All right, it was actually day one. This was really, really fun. So um, Evan Ludeman, he's a Tango 8. He was also flying a 27, and he came in on fourth place for the day. So flying a 15-meter glider. And yeah. uh, the okay. winner was 173 kilometers an hour, and he was 171. So that was really, oh, really good. Wow. Now, Evan's a great pilot, but um, you know, see him flying a, a 27, 15 meter at the 18 meter nationals on a very yeah. strong day. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. Uh, yeah, that was that was fun to see. So I guess you could say he was the dark horse. Um, let me just actually share something with you. Um, am I interested in getting a brand new, you know, newest generation glider? Yes, I. Um, you know, I, I'll share with you. I'm I'm got my eyes on maybe a 33. But uh, seeing it flying with these guys in my 27, um, and now unfortunately, again, because of the, the power farm issues, I, I, I couldn't fly with people that much. But when I did fly with them, I was really shocked. Uh, I, I did not feel like I was just falling away all the time. So hmm. uh, what I, you know, what I attribute my ultimate standings to was more my decisions than my equipment. So um, is a brand new Ventus three or JS three or, or 33, you know, going to perform better than a, you know, 15 meter 27. That's 20 years old. Of course it is, but it's shocking. Not as much as you might think. So um, I don't know, just, just kind of tidbit racing with these guys in a little 15 meter glider. I felt like when we actually were together, we could keep, you know, keep up with them. Yeah. So kind of fun. Yeah, as long I mean, as long as you know what you're doing and you know how to how to fly, I mean, yeah, you stay in stay in uh, competing with them. Is there anybody you'd like to especially thank or give a shout out to at the 18 meter nationals, or maybe a competitor that cut you off in a gaggle and you want to publicly haze? <laughs> <laughs> Darn you! Uh, there's no hate. No, actually it's only love in this one. So the good news is That's nobody good. to, nobody to call out and hate. Right. Um, as for the, uh, you know, people to thank, boy, if I, if I start thinking, um, I mean, we're, we're going to be you know, dozen to 20 different people. Yeah. So, um, let me just stick with the, you know, the CD, uh, Marshall McClung. He did a fantastic job. He had a lot of responsibility, Good job, Marshall. And then uh, John Godfrey, he um, ended up scoring remotely, spending a lot of time, you know. So that's that's just a lot of work and not a lot of fun there in the venue. So, you know, those two guys. And then, again, a whole bunch of other people um, that are – now let me just say one other person. That, that That's our club president and here at uh, Utah, and that's uh, – Mike Hendren, and he is kind of the unsung hero of Nephi behind the scenes. He spends many dozens, if not hundred plus hours helping me when it comes to um, registrations and accounting and things. So, you know, huge thank you to him. But again, there's many other people too to, to, to thank. So, but uh, those are the three, if you're asking for shout outs. Okay. So our last question before we do the uh, famous soaring lightning round, one of the team here on the podcast, they got wind that you were going to be on the show, and they wanted me to ask you kind of a random question, so bear with me. His question <laughs> is, what do you think of the notion of automated electric flaps, like on the Duck Hawk, for example, and why don't you think this innovation has been adopted by the main manufacturers? I mean, 
isn't a computer by nature more efficient than a human when it comes to aerodynamic efficiency and making all those micro adjustments many times a second? Yeah, I, I'm sure it is. And, you know, we, we've got a, uh, a prototype glider. Um, is it the Nexus that's, that's kind of doing that right now too? Um, okay. You know, that's a huge open class. My answer would be flaps are really easy. Um, now I might not be doing them anywhere near as efficiently, but from my point of view, um, flaps are not that hard. So you get these standard class pilots or newer pilots that are all afraid of, oh, I, you know, I need to have 20 years of experience before I go to a flap ship. You can learn flaps in five minutes. Um, you know, just know the speeds of when you need to be at the different flap settings and it's not that hard. So, um, Maybe this is my ignorance over how much more you could gain from automated flaps, but um, you know, when I'm flying, uh, I'm not even thinking of the flaps. It just automatically happens uh, with the left hand. So maybe because it's just not that hard. So um, maybe there's a bunch to gain, but I'm not aware of it. Chuck, hi, it's Scott from Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. We're proud to be a sponsor of Soaring the Sky. Congratulations on your 100th episode. And we love what you're doing for the sport of soaring. Keep up the great work, and we're looking forward to the next 100 episodes. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Well, thank you, Bruno. It is time for our soaring lightning round. So basically, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you can answer the question or you can pass on it. What do you think? I'm looking forward to making a fool of myself. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have no idea what you're going to do. <laughs> most memorable sing- most memorable single glider flight of your life, if you had to pick one. When and where? Grand Canyon, first time. Um, got a video of it. Um, I've, I'd never gotten emotional in the cockpit before, but uh, flew from Nephi down the Grand Canyon and back. Uh, I think it was like 275 miles one way and flying over the Grand Canyon and seeing it. Um, I still even get choked up thinking about how just amazing that experience was. So hands down. That. Yeah. But, but you know, if you want to, you can experience it with me on my YouTube channel. I've, I ended up filming it. It was fun. Awesome. Absolutely. Again, if you had to pick only one, your favorite gliding spot, money and time, no object. If you could be teleported there, where would it be? Ooh, I'm looking forward to flying the Alps in Europe someday. So, nice. and I've not flown there, but uh, that that that's a goal. Love to fly there. When you were first starting in your cross-country soaring and racing, who were some of the pilots that you really looked up to most and who helped you develop as a pilot? The answer is um, actually nobody. Um, so I, 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 there's something wrong with me. I started flying and um, as a student pilot, um, and I started in a 233. Within a month, I was in a 126. And I immediately started going cross country, um, you know, as, as far as I was allowed to go, 25 miles out. 
I actually landed out in a farmer's field, my very first, uh, 126 flight. So, um, the oh. other pilots at the time, they weren't doing much cross country. So I actually kind of taught myself cross country by myself, but ended up developing a whole bunch of friends. But this was, you know, for me, it was a lot self-taught. Flight preparation day before morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? So the night before I jump onto my weather programs to see, uh, you know, what are the clouds, what are the winds and you know, what, what's the expected location um, of the best lift the morning of I'm checking it again and I get really bored if I just go up and fly. So I have to create a task every single time for myself, uh, whether it's a state record or attempt or, or something like that. And then, um, in terms of what I forget, there've been multiple times to the first part of the season where I forget my batteries for my glider. So I just end up flying it as a, uh, you know, without any batteries, uh, just a, a pure glider. Well, that's not always a bad thing. It's kind of nice to do that. I don't think there's very lightning. I, maybe I should need to have a shorter answer. <laughs> Sorry. <fine. laughs> uh, what kind of GoPro are you using right now? And what editing software do you use to make your YouTube videos? Or is that a secret? Just barely <laughs> bought a new Hero 9 happy with it so far. I also bought their 360 camera and I was going to use it, but I did not film a single in cockpit second uh, during the, the contest. I was just too busy running it and then trying to fly it. So sorry, no, no footage uh, for, from the, from the contest. I'm excited to try the 360. That'll be fun. In terms of editing software, I use uh, the, the big boy Adobe Premiere Pro. And I think that the way that it compiles everything at the very end might be a slight edge over why sometimes uh, my videos maybe seem a little bit higher quality than if you were just upload straight from a GoPro. There's um, some, I don't know, uh, just, and with only a single camera, normally um, it's not like I have a lot of editing to do, but uh, I use Premiere Pro, but I would not recommend pilots use that unless they really want to get into the deep weeds because it's a serious program with a steep learning curve. Yeah. Other than your own, what's the coolest or most memorable gliding YouTube you've seen lately? Ooh. So the one that, yeah, it, it's always fun to see, well, um, you know, something unique, but um, there was a an open class glider that, uh, a guy was doing, I think, a winch launch on, you know, several years ago, and it got multiple millions of views. And I, I just thought that would be so much fun to do. Um, I'm just so busy with life. I wish I was able to spend more time sitting around watching YouTube videos, but uh, um, <laughs> I, I, I probably have a whole bunch of gliding YouTube videos to catch up on. <laughs> What's your favorite soaring book? Hmm. Um, I've not read that many, but probably Moffat's Winning Two. Uh, that was a good book. What would you value more, win a contest or set a record? I'd say win a contest at this point because um, state records are so fun. Um, if if you're flying at all and you're looking for purpose, take a look on the SSA's website, take a look at the state records and start going after them. So, I mean, I, I probably have, I don't know, 12 or 15 Utah state records. That's actually not bragging. That's just showing that the bar is really low. <laughs> So, um, so, so the answer is, yeah, I'd like to win a contest, but because state records are really not that hard. <laughs> so, 
Okay, you have to land out, and both the fields are the same surface and the length and length. Slight uphill with a fifteen knot tailwind, or a slight downhill with a fifteen knot headwind. Uh, you said slight, so I think the real answer is is that most of the time you don't know. You can't really see if it's really uphill or downhill. So if it's only slight, I'm, I like to land into the wind. Because if you think about it, I mean, if you're landing with a tailwind, your ground speed, especially here in Utah, is going to be really, really fast. So there's more opportunity to, to hit something. So yeah, I, I like to land slow into, into the wind. Emergency, you have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. <laughs> I joke, I'm so fat right now that my parachute would make the crater only five feet deep instead of 10 feet deep. So I'm going in the lake, Uh baby, because if I actually had to use my parachute, uh, I'm going to have some broken feet and legs and (laughs) everything. So, I mean, all joking aside, though, I mean, if if we need to use our parachute, uh, you know, multiple people uh, that I know of friends have used them and they've gotten out safely, so. If I needed to use it, I'd use my parachute. Spoilers, open or closed at start of tow. Oh, always always open, even if there's not a crosswind. And But my 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 glider's pilot's manual you know, suggests it. It helps with the aileron control a little bit. So absolutely open in the 27. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Um, you don't have a skull cap for the bald spot on top. Um, it's a bucket hat because, <laughs> you know... We, we're, we're glider pilots. We're supposed to look like fishing losers, and we do an amazing job with it. So, <laughs> shoes, <laughs> shoes, boots, or barefoot? Uh, no. Uh, since I seem to be landing out lately, I'm glad I've had shoes on. So, uh, not barefoot. Water bottle or camelback? I got a camelback, but I try really hard not to use it. I'm seeing, you know, I was tempted quite a bit to use it before when I was on the ground. Leave that thing full for when you're in the air. Um, so in case you do land out, you've got some water there too. So big camel back in the back. Vario sound on in sync or quiet? So Vario on, however, I try to keep it as quiet as possible. A, because people in my videos talk about how annoying it is. But it also then you know allows you to listen to the glider and the wind better. And so... As quiet as possible. Paper checklist, mnemonic. What's a checklist? I do not have a paper checklist, so I use mnemonics. Last time you looked at the compass. I don't have a compass on mine. So um, I use, you know, I look at the bearing but uh, that I'm flying, but I don't have a compass. Most annoying thing on competition day. The pause is not for drama. It, um, I enjoy competition so much. I can't think of anything. It's just so much fun. I, um, I got nothing. I'm, I'm completely blank. <laughs> okay. We'll pass. How about the most pleasing or happy thing on competition day? Right as you land and you open up the canopy uh, with the helpers that are helping you get off the runway, um, asking them, how the other pilots did. And then when they start saying, yeah, that was a tough day at the office and you know, you did well, that's kind of fun. Nice. P tube, P bag, diaper, or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right when you jump out of the cockpit. <laughs> uh, yes. And yes. So uh, condom catheters <laughs> are the way to go. 
uh, going out through the bottom of the glider, but it's a pain in the butt to have to deal with. So um, if I can hold it till and pee afterwards, uh, that's the way to go. But be right. prepared so you can because uh, needing to relieve yourself in flight can be very distracting. So be prepared. <laughs> Tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what. I am from the West, not from the East. All the East guys love to stuff their gliders in their trailer every night. So for me in the past, it's always just been tied down. I've been very lucky that uh, just this year I built um, or I had built a uh, Enzyme hanger, which is a, I got a 15 meter one. I'll, I'll upgrade to an 18 meter when I get a new ship, but um, I now have a individual hanger. I can put it away every night, which is real fun. Nice. Gatorade or water in summer flights? Hmm. I've never tried Gatorade, so I'm afraid of what it will do to my oh. camelback time after time after time because uh, uh, yeah, I know, I, know I don't have the the uh, discipline to wash it, so I, I just use water. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? I absolutely love my Butterfly Vario um, because the real-time winds are incredible. It's an instant switch of the knob over to a um, artificial horizon, which has always been very accurate. And I tested every single flight just as I'm flying straight, just to make sure it still looks good. And, um, you know, it, it's very sensitive. That said, I completely hate the sounds that it makes. So um, I actually listen to my V7 as I'm more looking at my butterfly vario. Tinted canopy or clear? Slightly tinted. Okay. And it's really easy to go too dark. Um, yeah. But I've got a couple of friends that went really dark and they seem to like it. But uh, hmm. um, underneath a, a, a dark cloud shelf, I bet it's pretty dark. Yeah. Your adult beverage of choice on the last night of a long racing week. Ooh. Um, I would say make sure that you've invited Papa Seven, Gary Itner. He um, homebrews his, his own beer, and he actually brings kegs of beer to uh, to races. And he's oh, nice. very, very liberal in, in sharing with everybody. And um, he had a, what was it? Um, uh, it, was, it was some British, uh, British beer that, uh, it was a bitter. Um, I think that's British. Um, it wasn't carbonated, and uh, he did good. So huh? wow. something, nice. something from Gary. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. Gary's going to be the favorite guy, right? Oh yeah. He's, yeah, he's great. <laughs> Bruno, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you and nice to catch up with you. It's been a little while. I've really enjoyed this. Um, you know, I don't know if we really got into too much meat and potatoes, but you know, congratulations again for your hundredth podcast. That that's amazing. Hundredth episode. And I really looking looking forward to see what you come up with the next uh, hundred. So let me put you on the spot and what do you expect, you know, for the next 50 to hundred? You know, what do you, what do you want to achieve? You know, let's turn the tables, buddy. <laughs> well, this all started with an idea I had to grow the sport of soaring and it definitely has gone above and beyond my original expectations. You know, my wife and my family have been very supportive and some of my family, of course, are part of the team here. And I consider the whole team here at Soaring the Sky family. You know, I said here, knocking the first couple episodes out, not knowing the future, but here we are, and it has been, it's been an awesome ride. 
we do have some exciting stuff planned for the near future, but I'm not going to let that out of the bag yet. You're just going to have to stay tuned for that. So, Bruno, what is next for you? What is next? Uh, I'm really looking forward to starting to play with multiple cameras, uh, both in the cockpit as well as uh, out on the wing and, and out on the tail. So, um, looking forward to that and actually, you know, doing a little bit more editing so that way it's a little bit more of a story. And I've got some big goals um, for down the road with soaring but uh, nothing to announce yet. So again, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me and inviting me to do this and uh, really appreciate you. The story I'm about to relay is about the time that I was a commercial glider pilot a flight instructor, and a tow pilot to the summer operation of Harris Hill in the year 1976. My assignment today, or that particular day, was to uh, give glider rides. Well, the ride I was supposed to give was a young fellow about maybe 9 or 10 years old. I occupied the front seat of the 233, and he in the back. Everything was going well on the initial part of the tow till we got over to the departure end of the runway. It was quite windy that day, and there was a lot of turbulence off the end of the runway. And the airplane kind of rocked back and forth and right to left, and it was kind of rough ride there at the end. Well, at this point, I had heard a loud twang, and I looked up, and the tow rope was snaking toward the tow plane. I'm thinking, oh, man, I just had a rope break. And I looked back at Harris Hill, and I said, well, there's no way I can make it back there, you know, with the altitude that we had. So I looked for alternate landing fields in the valley below us, which was was occupied by um, a couple of farms. Well, I set up, and I found this field I really liked, set up for it, base, final, Everything was good. Well, the reason I picked this particular field is that the field ended uh, up to this person's backyard. My thought was, okay, we'll land in this field, roll out, and I'll be almost up to the backyard so we won't have to drag the ship too far because we can take a trailer and back it up into their driveway, into their yard, and just load the glider. Well, that was my thought. Well, we touched down fine. We rolled about 20 feet. I had forgotten it had rained quite heavily the night before. The field was just a quagmire of soft earth and mud. As we exited the ship, we sunk up past our ankles in the mud. But we were able to make our way out of the field into this person's backyard. Now, by this time, the crew up on Harris Hill had seen what was happening, and it was already down there to meet us. They said to me, well, why did you release? I said, I didn't release. The rope broke. They said, no, no, the rope did not break. Rope's intact. I said, really? And they said, yeah. And they asked me, well, I told them I did not release. 
and all eyes looked at my young passenger as he was being hurriedly stuffed into the back seat of his family's car, and they quickly sped away. I guess my passenger, in the turbulence or whatever, grabbed something, and he grabbed that red knob and released us. So the rest of the day was spent pulling the glider out of the muddy field, across the backyard, up onto the trailer, and taking it up to Harris Hill, where it was washed, reassembled, and the bearings and the main wheel cleaned out. Thank you to one of our listeners for that story that we can all learn from. They would like to remain anonymous, but I do appreciate them sharing that with us. If you have a story and you want to share, you can go to our website, click the Contact Us tab, and then look for the Share Your Story with the microphone next to it, and then go ahead and click that. It's that easy. We would love for you to share your name and where you're flying out of, but yes, you can remain anonymous. We want to hear those great stories here on Soaring the Sky. Hey, Chuck, this is Dale Masters at Southern California Soaring Academy. Congratulations on this 100th podcast. I bet you find the second 100 probably comes sooner. Keep it up. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Hi everyone, Sergio from Soaring Master here. Today we're going to talk about one of the most important decisions a pilot can make, buying a sailplane. Buying a sailplane depends on lots of factors, like how often do you fly, the type of flying you see yourself pursuing for the next 5 years or so, how much money are you willing to spend. If your club's fleet is undersized for the number of members, if your personal goals require a type with more performance, or if you simply want a sailplane for yourself, the next step is to analyze the following options. The first one is buying a new or a used sailplane. Buying a new sailplane manufactured to meet your specifications is a great experience, but one that requires patience. Once you sign the contract, you are assigned a position in the production line. It's a fancy way to say that you join the queue. Sometimes it can take from two to four years, depending on the type and the manufacturer. This is one of the easiest ways of buying a trouble-free unit, and they all come with warranty, usually of one year or of a number of flight hours. But this comes with a high price too. That's why a used sailplane is a good option. 
Usually, the sale plane's price will have already lowered due to depreciation. Depreciation is related to the sale plane's current condition and to how close the unit is from a costly inspection or from the end of its service life. So, you need to know exactly what is the manufacturer's maintenance schedule. So, ask a copy of the sale plane's logs to know every detail about the sale plane's life, if any airworthiness directive implementation is missing. So, analyze the sale plane's maintenance schedule and look for every airworthiness directive ever issued by the manufacturer to assess how many flight hours are available. Also, hire an inspector to give you a professional evaluation. This can help a lot during the negotiation. Another option at hand is buying a pure or sustainer equipped sailplane. If you want performance and you live near a gliding club and you don't have problems in finding a ground support team, most probably a pure sailplane will do and you won't need the extra cost related to a sustainer engine. But if you constantly fly cross country, having the chance to just call the day and head back home without any further ado is great. If this is your profile and you live near a club with a tow plane, a sustainer equipped sailplane might be a good choice. But if you live far from any gliding club and you regularly fly cross country or take part in certain camps, you might need a self-launched sailplane. The freedom of taking off whenever you want is awesome, but only countered by engine reliability. It's sad to say, but true. The mechanical and electrical systems which allows the engine extraction, retraction and functioning are not simple ones, so yeah, you will eventually have to abort the flight on a perfect day due to some engine problem. If you buy a new self-launched sailplane, these problems will be very rare for the first five years. But hey, who has never missed a flight day due to engine problems with the tow plane before? Another option that we must analyze is buying a certified or experimental sailplane. It's not only about price. A certified sailplane is an aircraft manufactured in accordance with an approved design, which is called type. And the owner must certify with each annual inspection that the aircraft still is in accordance with this type. So any maintenance or repair must be done by a technician or a center certified by the manufacturer. An experimental sailplane is an aircraft without a type certificate, so it's up to the aircraft's owner to maintain its airworthiness. You can more easily make modifications like installing winglets, and it doesn't mean that you won't have to comply with the sailplane's manufacturer maintenance schedule. It means that you are responsible for ensuring that the aircraft is safe or airworthy. You have more freedom to hire any mechanic to do maintenance work, or you can do it on your own if you have the knowledge. It ends up being cheaper, but depending on your country, experimental aircraft may face airspace restrictions. The certified aircraft airworthiness is backed by the manufacturer. The experimental aircraft airworthiness is backed by you. My own 
sailplane, my self-launched Peak 20 Echo, is an experimental aircraft. Another option that we must analyze is buying a loan or in a syndicate. If you can afford buying the sailplane alone, do it. But you are going to realize that inevitably the sailplane will end up underused and the costs will fall solely on you. Again, if this is not a problem, well, this won't be an issue. But a syndicate is a very common buying option. The only thing is that the group must be a united one. Buying a sailplane is a huge investment, so the number one rule of any negotiation is to leave your emotions at the door. See you guys next episode. Take care. Hey, this is Bruno Vassal, and I just wanted to wish Chuck and team a huge congratulations for reaching 100 podcasts with Soaring the Sky. You guys have had amazing content, great um, interviews, and I've really enjoyed watching you guys grow. Can't wait for the next 100. Congratulations. Thank you, Bruno, and thanks to all of our guest pilots who have brought us all the amazing content that we've been able to share with you here on the podcast. Thank you for continuing, of course, to come back and listen to each and every episode. And, of course, thanks again to the amazing team here at Soaring the Sky for helping me put all this together. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.